we've been talking about, well, why should we read the Bible? What's important about the Bible? Uh, why do we understand that the Bible is true? What are the qualities of the Bible? What outside the Bible points us to the truth of the Bible? We've looked at all those sort of things, and last week, Brad led us through how to read the Bible. Wasn't that encouraging? I know most of us here have probably been believers for some time, and we've been reading the Bible, and it's been just an important part of who we are as Christians. It's so refreshing to me to just be uh, washed again in those concepts of, yes, this is how we read it, this is how we read it, this is how we read it. I appreciate there was one verse he shared last week that stood out to me from Acts 17, talking about these Berean Jews. These Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so... And that's my hope and my prayer for each of you. It's my hope and my prayer for us as a church that we would be like these Bereans. Especially that part of examining. Examining the scriptures. Examining the scriptures daily. That's my prayer for us. That's part of why we've called this whole series People of the Book. That's my hope and my goal and my dream for myself and for all of us as a church is that we would be people of the book. It's what we want to be. And so last week we were really looking sort of a kind of, this is almost kind of a two-part thing here. Last week we were looking at examining the scriptures. How do we examine the scriptures? Well, the first step is to pick it up and read it. And to read it, all of it. And to read it regularly, as it says in this verse, to read it daily. And so today we're going to look at sort of the second part of that, of being a Berean. The second part of that is examination. And in that examination specifically, interpretation. How do we interpret what the Bible says? And this ties to a question I, you may remember if you were here several weeks ago, I asked that question. I said, oh, we'll get back to this. It was a question of how do I know what the Bible means? What does the Bible mean by what it says? How can I interpret the Bible correctly? And so we want to start this morning with a clear definition of interpretation. We want to really understand what that is. What does the Bible mean by what it says? When it comes to the meaning of the Bible, like it says here on the screen, we shouldn't just decide what it means. <laughs> okay, well, I read the Bible and I just decided what it means. It sounds so nice, doesn't it, to say, well, I think it means this. Or, I feel it means that. But, I think we all recognize we're all led astray by our feelings. Just to go back into the football example, ten days ago I felt the Broncos were going to beat the Chiefs. Well, that didn't happen. I'm led astray by my feelings. I can't base the truth on my feelings or how I feel or my inclinations or my senses. We can't just decide what the Bible means in the same way. We can't just decide it. It means something. It has a meaning. If it was the inspired word of God, it has a meaning. And God intended that meaning to be there. We need to do our best to know. We need to know what that meaning is. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And now I understand he's giving some instructions to a pastor here. But I think there's instructions for all of us in this. There's really kind of three parts there of reading Scripture. Saying first thing to do, like we talked about last week, is to read it. You've got to read it. You've got to explain it. And you've got to apply it. So many times, particularly in our culture, with all this digital stuff and everything going on and all of this independence, we just kind of want to go from read to apply. But there's a middle step in there of explain it, understand it, examine it, know what it means. Read it, understand it, then apply it. 
That's what I think he's talking about here. Explanation is the key. 2 Timothy 2.15. I love, always love this verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why? Because he's rightly handling the word. Rightly handling the word of truth. Some translations Instead of saying right, rightly handling, they say rightly dividing. Maybe you grew up and that's sort of the, the version you understand. But what those simply just mean is rightly having an understanding of what the meaning is. You understand what the meaning of the Bible is. Having a right understanding of it. And the implication of this, of rightly handling, is that you can also wrongly handle the Bible. I mean, that seems kind of dumb, but that's true. There is a way that you can just not handle it correctly. There's a right way and there are many wrong ways. I thought I would share a few examples of misinterpretation of wrongly handling the Bible. One of those, you may have heard of this idea of not using medicine. Now, I understand all of us have different views on how much and when and where, but people who say, hey, look... Jesus and the apostles, they just did miraculous healings, and so everybody should just have faith and just do miraculous healings, and you don't need to see doctors, you don't need to take care of yourself, you don't need to do anything else. That is a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of context. Another idea is this concept of baptism for the dead. Some people believe in this idea of, oh, we can be baptized for dead people. Why? Because there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that mentions it. We'll look at it a little bit later. And they say, hey, we'll do this thing. Well, we'll see as we get into this later. That's not a good interpretation. That's a misinterpretation of Scripture. It doesn't always have to be these big things, though. Sometimes it can be smaller things. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Everybody's probably read this verse. Everybody's probably thought of this verse and used this verse. But so many times this verse gets used in isolated context and they go, Hey, I can do crazy superhuman things because God gives me strength. Well, there's some truth to that, but that's not exactly the interpretation because that verse is pulled out of context. When we look at that verse in context, it's really about enduring hardships in your life. That's really what the context of this verse is. Right? Another example of this are Jesus' words from uh, Matthew 18. He says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, if we read this verse isolated, and I'll stand up and say, I'm guilty of this. We read this verse isolated, we go, well, I show up at a meeting, a, a gospel group, or a prayer meeting, or some other sort of leaders meeting, and I go, well, there's two or three of us here, and so God's here with us, so we're good, and we kind of feel better about ourselves, and that's true, but you also have to step back and say, is that really what that means? Because I can sort of look at it logically and say, so does that mean if I'm alone, then God's not with me? No, that's not what it means. We know from other scripture that that's not the case. Well, what's the context? We look at the context of this, and in the context, Jesus is offering reassurance to people who are in the midst of conflict and trials in their church and their spiritual family and going through church discipline and those kind of things. And so we go, okay, well, there's a meaning there, but maybe we don't always use it the right way. So it's very easy to misinterpret the Bible. So if we understand it's important to get to that correct meaning, we have to ask that question, how do I get to the right interpretation? How do I get there? How do I know what the Bible means by what it says? Well, there's a couple things we can do. The first one is to avoid errors. Obviously, we don't want to wrongly handle the word. We want to rightly handle the word. 
three ways we can do this. The first is to, we don't sacrifice proper interpretation to make a point. We don't sacrifice what's right to just make a point. I'll give you an example from Scripture, Mark chapter eleven twenty three. We've probably all heard this verse. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, as Jesus talking by the way, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and he does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. We've all heard this verse. We go, oh, moving mountains, that's great. And this is a popular verse in certain circles, oftentimes called word faith circles, where they go, hey, look, all you got to do is have enough faith. You have enough faith, you can do anything. See, Jesus said, you have enough faith, you can do anything. It's a poor interpretation of this passage for a couple of reasons. First off, in this context, you look at it and Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, well, what mountain is that? What is that? What is he talking about? Well, you go back to the story, and this is in the midst of a situation where there's a fig tree, and Jesus has cursed this fig tree, and the fig tree has withered. The disciples are like, what is going on? Well, the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel and the Jewish religion and their rejection of the Messiah. And this is, by the way, this fig tree is on the way into Jerusalem, which is located on a mountain. Right? It's on top of a mountain. And so what mountain is he talking about? He's talking about the the Jerusalem Temple Mount. And he says, whoever says to this mountain... And now he's, he is being figurative, not just saying, oh, this physical mountain. He's saying all of this oppression, all of these religious authorities who are rejecting the Messiah and rejecting the truth that God has created. Whoever says to this mountain, oh, well, that's a little bit different than just, oh, the mountain in my life, right? The second thing, we can look at this logically. And we can say, okay, what if Jesus was saying, have enough faith, you can do anything? Have enough faith, you can do anything? What if he was saying that? Well, at this point, about 2,000 years later, wouldn't we see no more war, no more sickness, no more poverty, no more hardship? And certainly we'd be looking at people who had faith and being like, well, their lives are just perfect. Because they ought to just be able by faith to say, ha, those mountains in your life, those hardships in your life, you just say move and they'll get out of the way and nothing but smooth sailing for you going forward. Well, that's obviously not what it means because that's not what we see. So people who use this verse to try to make their point usually have some sort of other agenda. They're trying to make a point, and so they take the scripture, they take it out of the context, and they try to use it in their own way. Another way to think about this error, this error of sacrificing proper interpretation, is if you're ever trying to help somebody or talk to somebody, and you go, okay, all right, all right. I got a point I want to say. I got something I want to say to them. I'm going to go hunt through the scripture and find some verse that I can use to tell them to do it. Right? Sometimes we can do that. As a pastor, I've seen people do this. People come to me and they ask for counsel and I give them counsel and they go and hunt around for some verse that they can sort of pull out of context and give back to me so that they don't have to listen (laughs) and consider what I had to say. Right? I see that. I've also seen pastors do this. There's even well-known pastors out there who will go and they'll be like, I want to make a point and they go to a bunch of different translations of the Bible and they start sifting through So they can find the one that uses the exact word that they want to use. And you go, well, I'm not sure that's exactly how we want to be interpreting the word. Paul gives us a warning in 2 Corinthians about this. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. 
But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We don't want to be peddlers of the word. What does he mean? What does he mean by being a... What does it mean to peddle the word? I think we see it, obviously, in our culture around us. We really do. I see so many who are out there going, hey, I'm trying to make money. I'm using the Bible. I'm using the Christianity as a way to build up my own wealth and my own influence and power over people. And I think we can see all around us more and more that choice, that path bearing bad fruit for them, bearing bad fruit for our culture. And Paul is telling us, don't use the Bible for your personal gain. Don't use the Bible to try to make your own point, to try to build yourself up. There's a good rule of thumb when I think of this, is that when we think about illustrations, and I, I want to illustrate a point, we want to we start with the scripture and let illustrations flow out of it, instead of starting with an illustration and trying to attach scripture to our illustration. Right? Second way we can avoid errors is to avoid superficial interpretation. Superficial, that just means surface, like a surfacey interpretation. One way this can be very common is if you're sitting in a small group discussion and you say, I think this verse means this. Well, that's nice that you think that, right? We have gospel groups that meet uh, throughout the week in homes. It's our way of sharing the truth with each other. And we always, always seek to avoid saying, what does that mean to you? Because we're not really interested in what it means to you. We're interested in what it means, We want to know what the scripture means. So we replace that with, what does it mean and how can you apply that? That's where we want to land in our groups because we want to avoid superficial interpretation. An example of this, I encountered a a guy once who, uh, he shared this verse with me as we were working through some things. And it's Proverbs 24, 27, you see on the screen there. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. And this guy used this verse to say, look, I went, I found a job in some faraway city and I need to go there because I have that job. Because see, I got to get stuff ready so I can build my life around this job. And it was like, well, okay. But that was really a disguise for what he was really trying to do, which was, I'm really trying to move away from my problems. And so I went and sort of found this job somewhere else. And now I'm trying to use this superficial interpretation to justify what I want to do. I want this to mean what I want it to mean. I go, I don't really think that's what that verse means. I don't think that's what the meaning is. Third thing we can do to avoid errors is to just not spiritualize Scripture. Now, you might look at that and say, now wait a second, isn't Scripture spiritual? (laughs) And I go, yeah, it is spiritual, but let me explain what I mean. So if I stand up here on a Sunday and I go, okay, Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in the grave... He rose on the third day. And when he rose on the third day, there was an angel. The angel showed up and rolled away the stone. And in the same way that the angel rolled away the stone, so also God can roll away big stones in your life of greed and doubt and anger and sorrow and bitterness. I go, well, that's a nice idea. But that stone that we're talking about with the angel has nothing to do with those other things, right? I'm just trying to take something and spiritualize it. I go, that's not a really good use of the scripture because that's not getting us to the meaning. We could do this with almost anything. We really can. So let's not do it with scripture. You could do it with anything. There's this example. There's a famous Bible teacher who's used this before. And he goes, let's take the little Bo Peep 
home, right? Everybody knows this one little boopy has lost their sheep, can't tell where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home bringing their tails behind them. You could see, I won't go into it, but you could see how we could go, oh, okay, well there's a bunch of lost people in the world and uh, at some point we leave them alone and God's going to lay their, his work on their life and, and he's gonna, they're going to come back to Jesus and you go, really? <laughs> we don't need to spiritualize things. We have the word of God. It has power. It has meaning. It has depth. We don't need to make things spiritualized that aren't. It's silly. And we don't want to do that with the Bible. So to be, assured that we, to be sure that we're avoiding errors, we also want to select good sources of interpretation. It kind of seems like a no-brainer, but there's a couple criteria for that. The first one is we need to understand the barriers that stand between us and good interpretation. So we'll go through those. There's four barriers today. The first one is language. We've got to remember the Bible... It was not written in 21st century English. It wasn't, right? It was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and Aramaic. Is there anybody here who is fluent in any of those languages? Nobody? Yeah, me neither, right? <laughs> Very few people are fluent in those things. So we look at a verse like this, Acts 10.46, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And we go, okay, there's a verse, and it's in English. All right. Well, in English and in our American culture, we look at that and we go, oh, well, speaking in tongues, well, I know there's kind of that thing where people kind of mutter on and, and say things, and it's sort of this angelic, heavenly language. And Okay, so that's what must have been happening here. Well, when you go back to the Greek, and the Greek word for tongues is glossae, which means languages. So, really, it might have been better for whoever translated these to say they were hearing them speaking in other languages and extolling God. This is a barrier. We can see how this is, and probably most of you, hopefully all of you, since none of you are fluent in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, are going, I'm no scholar. How do I overcome this barrier? How do I do that? This is a language barrier, and I have to, in some ways, trust. And I go, that's true, but there's a few things we can do here. One of those is we can look at multiple translations and see how things are translated differently. I picture the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, it is so handy. You can also use web-based things like Bible Gateway, where you can just click from translation to translation and you're right there in that passage. That's really helpful. Something I use is that thing in the middle, the Keyword Study Bible. It's, a, it's an actual physical Bible. I know you can't just always use your phone but sometimes you've got to read something. But I love it because it takes keywords and at the back it gives definitions of those. And on some of those keywords, it has an extended definition and it points you to other passages where the same words occur. And it helps illuminate the text in a lot of ways. And these are available in all different translations. You can get one. I keep one on my desk. It's very useful. And then if you really want to get into it, you can get something like Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary that has everything. And you can just go and try to dig into that. And I go, hey, that's great. That is available to you. A second barrier besides language is the culture. The cultural barrier. Now, is the Bible timeless? Yeah, the Bible is timeless. It still applies to us today. It applies through all times and all people in all places and all times. But we also have to remember it was also written in a specific or in specific places, in specific times, and in specific cultures. And so we need to understand the context in which it was written. An example of that is John 1.1. Some of you I know have been memorizing this with the new 
Memory madness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we take that verse, and you take the, the word, word, <laughs> and you go, okay, what does that mean to us? Well, we read the word, word, and we probably think of a book, something written like that. And I go, okay, well, there's meaning in that. But when John wrote this, he was writing to Greeks and Jews. And so when he used that word, and he used the Greek word for word, and the Greeks read that or they heard that, what did they think of? They said, oh, word is, is an energy. It is a power. It is cosmic. So they were sort of thinking it that way. But then there were also Jews who were reading it. And the Jews, when they saw that, they thought, oh, word is a manifestation of God. The word of God is God's manifestation. It's something real. And so you can see, when we look at that and we understand that culturally, we go, wow, there's more to that verse than just, oh, in the beginning was something sort of written down. Because obviously he's talking about Jesus. We understand the culture. We understand how powerful it was that John chose the word, word, in that case. So how do we overcome this barrier? I got a couple sources here. If you're going, I'd like to understand. I don't really understand the, the culture of the Bible. There's a couple of texts there. The life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, would be one of those. And the other would be new manners and customs of Bible times. There are people who have done a lot of research to figure these things out. It's worthwhile to look at those. Third barrier would be geography. Right? There's a geography. You know, the Bible didn't take place in Colorado. <laughs> it didn't take place in the United States. It didn't even take place in the Western Hemisphere. It takes place all in Israel, which is a tiny place that is, you know, is very cool. Now, I've heard people say this before. They say, you know, I, I used to see the Bible in black and white. And then I had a chance to visit Israel, and now I see it in color. I think that's an interesting thing. There's, I know there's some of you who here has been to Israel. Raise your hand if you've been to Israel. A few of you have. I've had the privilege of being there too. And I would say it's true. Do you guys think that's true? Yeah. You see it differently. One example, I've shared this before. Um, we all remember the passage where Jesus is with the disciples and they're headed into Caesarea Philippi. And he turns to him and he says, who do you say that I am? But when you understand the geography, you understand that Caesarea Philippi was this place of great uh, pagan idol worship. And there was these places where these waterfalls came out of the cliffs and they were actually part of the source of the Jordan River. And people thought in that day, hey, that's like, those are like entrances into the underworld, right? Oh, and they started worshiping things like Pan and, uh, and other things there. And so here's Jesus and he's walking with these disciples up to this, you know, huge thing and he goes... So who do the people say that I am? And you can begin to understand in this context. And so you have that picture in your mind when you understand the geography. Now this is a hard barrier to overcome, right? Because we don't just walk around Israel. It's not something to do, right? So how do we overcome it? Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Should we take a trip to Israel? Anyone want to do that? If you guys want to do that, I think we should do it. It would be really cool for us to go do that and we could figure out how to make it affordable. Here's a picture of Israel, right? Israel's not very big. And those of you who don't know, you could look like, here's Israel. This is it. And here's the Dead Sea. And here's the Sea of Galilee. And Jerusalem's kind of in here. And Jesus kind of walked around here. And it's, it's not very far. It's like less than 100 miles this way. And it's only like about 20... 15 to 20 miles that way. It's not a very big place. We could go there sometime. But if we can't go there, or in the meantime, 
we have these great tools called Google Earth <laughs> and maps. And you can go look at these things. You can look at these places. There's all kinds of Bible maps available that you can start to understand what was the geography and what was going on and let that not be a barrier as you learn to interpret the Bible. Another barrier, fourth barrier, would be history. There is a historical barrier. We have to realize the Bible, although it is timeless, it was written in real time. It was not written in a vacuum. We need to understand all the events that were weaving together. It was not an isolated thing. It was happening in a context and a culture. One example of this, you've seen this picture before we talked about it, is Jesus and Pilate. And you go, what was going on with Pilate and the Jews? And when we look at external history, we understand how there was a lot of tension between the Romans and the Jews. And Pilate had showed up and he was new and there was all of this tension and he was trying to kind of make peace. If we don't understand that history, we read it and we go, why did Pilate turn Jesus over to them? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, when you understand the external history and the things that are going on, you go, oh, I start to see what's going on here. There's always some good sources. Uh, you can find a, a Bible dictionary that can help you with this. There's also things like Zondervan publishes a pictorial encyclopedia of the Bible that can help you understand some of the history and the things that are going on around it. So, once we overcome those barriers, we need to embrace principles of interpretation. You go, okay, great. So how do we do this? What are some of these principles? Well, there's four principles we want to look at today. The first one is the literal principle. As it says there on the screen, what this means is that the Bible should be understood literally, normally, and naturally. It is what it is. What it says is what it says. Now, you go, wait a second. Aren't there symbols and figures of speech? You were just talking about one a minute ago. And I go, yes, there are symbols and there are figures of speech. But they convey literal truth. They convey literal truth. Right? And we understand that in example, Jesus says, I am the door. Well, that doesn't mean we should walk up to Jesus and be looking for a doorknob. We go, okay, we understand, but he's conveying a literal truth, which is he's saying, I am the way, a relationship with me is the way to be right with God. It is the door, it is the doorway that we have to walk through. So we understand that. We're reading it in a, in a very rational way there. Some people have, throughout history have looked at the Bible and said, I think there's got to be some secret meaning. There's got to be some hidden meaning. And they come up with these things and they start searching things out and they come up with these codes, right? And I just go, I'm sorry, there's no Da Vinci Code. <laughs> there's no Da Vinci Code for the Bible. That's just pure fiction. And I think we can even say that logically. We look in, in 2 Peter 3, it says, uh, God wants everyone to come to repentance. And so if God wants everyone to come to repentance, why would he put things and make things secret in the Bible? It doesn't even make any sense. So we can say, all right, we're going to look at it literally. The Bible should be understood literally, normally, and naturally. There's also a historical principle. We need to say, okay, what did the Bible mean to its audiences? It, again, it was written to an audience. What did it mean to them? What did it mean? And so when we read a passage, it's helpful for us to ask questions and say, okay, I'm reading this passage. Is the person who was hearing this or reading this the first time, did they know Jesus or did they not know Jesus? Uh, were they uh, free or were they in captivity? Uh, were they Jewish or were they Gentiles or were they Greeks or who were these people? And so on and so forth. There's a maxim that has really helped me and it's this. It's that scripture cannot mean what it has never meant. We really run into that, don't we? In our, in our culture today, uh, there's 
there's so many people who seem to just say, I want to take what the truth is, I want to take the Bible is, and I want to interpret it according to what I see going on in our culture. It happens all the time. I think it's really challenging because we see today churches who go out and say, well, there's this thing that uh, the Bible says is sin, but I'm going to sort of reinterpret the Bible because it's not really popular in this culture to say that that's sin, so I'm going to say that it's not sin. And I go, well, that kind of seems like a problem because the Bible has never meant that. It didn't mean that to the original audience. It hasn't meant that through all of those greats of faith all through the centuries. And now all of a sudden you say, because we have technology or whatever it is, that... What we said was sin before isn't sin now because it's popular in our culture. Well, they're sort of violating the historical principle of interpretation because scripture cannot mean what is never meant. Third principle would be a grammatical principle, which is just how does language ascribe meaning? And we all understand that in the way that we speak to each other, that language has meaning. That's why we're all driven nuts by poorly written emails, right? Now, who here is strong in grammar? Raise your hand if you're like, yeah, I'm really strong in in grammar. There's a couple of you. That's really good. How many of you are not strong in grammar? Yep, that would have been me, right? I tell people, yeah, when I was growing up and I I got shifted from one English class to another in middle school and I skipped (laughs) the whole year where we learned about nouns and verbs and pronouns and adjectives and prepositions and all that. I didn't know any of that. But I've had the privilege through my kids' school to relearn that in recent years. The good news is it's not very hard. But it's really, really helpful, and I've found it to be very helpful in determining biblical meaning of things. Part of that, one of the things I've learned to do is diagram sentences. So I love visual stuff. It takes language and turns it into visual. Now, here's an example. This isn't a scripture, of course. But here's an idea of what, a, what a, uh, a diagram of a sentence might look like. And you can do this with scripture. And it helps you start to understand. You start to see main thoughts and what is supporting and what really are things about. Um, a verse I like as an example of this. I, I don't have a diagram, but I at least have the verse on the screen for you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. We know this is probably the most important thing Jesus said because he told us what to do. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we look at this verse and we go, Okay, there's a lot of words there and there's a lot of grammar there. Well, how do we break it down? How do we really figure out what this is? Well, the first thing we can do with the sentence is say, Okay, who or what is this sentence about? Uh, well, if we don't know language, we're going, ah, Father, or Holy Spirit, or uh, disciples, I don't know. Well, if you understand language, you understand this is a command. And a command is an imperative. And the subject of, a com- of an imperative sentence is you. It's you. So Jesus is saying, hey, you. And he's telling you to do something. He's giving you, a, he's giving me a command. A command to do what? Well, then we look at the verb. What is the verb? Well, is it go? Is it baptizing? Teaching? Well, when you understand grammar, you understand the verb is make disciples. That's it. That's what we're supposed to do. You make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching, those are things that hang off of that. That is part of that process. But the thing to do is to make disciples. See how grammar can help you understand scripture? You can do this throughout scripture. Uh, A suggestion I can make, I have a book. I've read it. It's very interesting. It's called Diagramming the Scriptures. 
And it helps walk you through learning how I can learn to diagram sentences in Scripture so I can understand them better. I found that to be very helpful to me. Fourth principle today is the synthesis principle, which just really means that the Bible is a complete whole document. It all synthesizes together into one. In the Reformation, they have a term called analogia scriptura, which means the Scripture comes together. It all comes together. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how it's amazing how it all fits. It all agrees. Even though it was written by 40 authors over the course of centuries, it all comes together. It's amazing. That's not true in other religions. It is true of the Bible. So for an example of this, let's look back to that baptism of the dead of how we could apply the synthesis principle to a hard passage like this. Here's the verse. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? You've all probably heard this verse it's one way or another. And so to apply the synthesis principle, we'd start and say, okay, are there other passages in the Bible that refer to the practice of baptizing the dead? And the answer is No. There's not. We could say, okay, well, did Jesus ever talk about anything that even remotely resembled baptizing the dead? No, he did not. Uh, What about in this passage? Is this verse, I just have this, of course, out of context, but if we look at the whole context, is there a context of baptism for the dead and some instructions or things? Nope, there's not. So we know this is not some kind of instruction. This is some kind of illustration that Paul is giving. So we shouldn't say, oh, okay, I'm going to take this and start applying this and start figuring out how to baptize people for the dead. We're not going to do that. I appreciate J.I. Packer, uh, author of Knowing God and a number of other books. He put it this way as far as the Bible synthesis. I love this quote. It says, The Bible appears like a symphony orchestra with the Holy Ghost as its Toscanini. Those of you who don't know classical music, he's a famous composer, right? Each instrument has been brought willingly, spontaneously, creatively to play his notes just as the great conductor desired though none of them could ever hear the music as a whole. The point of each part only becomes fully clear when seen in relation to all the rest. Isn't that amazing? That's what the Bible is. And you go, okay, that's really cool. How do I apply this? A little maxim that helps me with this is this. When we come to passages like Baptism for the Dead or others, and we go, this is unclear. We want to interpret unclear scripture in light of clear scripture. Something that's been very helpful to me in trying to tackle difficult passages in the Bible. We can rely on the completeness of the Bible to understand its meaning. So, if we understand the actual meaning of the Bible is important, right? We don't just say, I just want to think it is, or I just sort of feel it is, like, what is what I feel it is. We want to know that there is an actual meaning to the Bible, And we recognize that there's these principles of proper interpretation and there's errors to avoid and pitfalls. Then we go, what's next? Okay, great. So I interpret the scripture, right? What's next? Well, the next thing is also very important is to put it into practice. We can't just say, yeah, that's what it means and go do something else. The point of the Bible is to give us instructions that we're to put into practice. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. When you understand the meaning of a verse, when you understand the meaning of a passage, don't stop there. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. How do we do that? A couple ways. One, say on the screen, look at your life. Identify your situation. And say, oh, I see the passage. I'm going to make new choices in line with the truth of the scripture. 
How we put it into practice is very simple, but when you understand the meaning, you can start to do that. And if you go, okay, how do I do that? Well, the first thing you do is ask God. God will help you. God will help you put it together. And then also just be honest and recognize, man, there may be some things in my life, some hurts, some wounds, some other things going on, some false beliefs that may be keeping me from that. And ask God for help. Ask others for help. Second thing we can do to put it into practice is to share what we're learning with others. <clears throat> I appreciate in Deuteronomy 11, it talks about, hey, you have the scripture, share it with your family. Share it with your immediate family. When you lie down, when you get up, when you're coming in and when you're going out. We try to put that into practice in our family, and I hope wherever you're at, whatever your family situation is, whatever your living situation is, you're putting that into practice. And even if you're single and you're living alone, you have opportunity to share to share what you're learning, and maybe it comes to that next level, which is the spiritual family. In your spiritual family, share what you're learning with others. And really, that's one of the main functions of having our gospel groups. Is it is a chance for us, and we can do that here on Sunday morning, but it's a chance for us to sit together and share what God is teaching us. It's also a chance for us to have shared with us what God is teaching others and to learn that way. We want to know what these applications of truth are for our lives. And then, of course, the lost. Share what you're learning with others. I appreciate in Romans 10 it says, How will they hear if someone isn't sent? If someone doesn't speak up, how will they hear? Sometimes we can just think, Oh, well, my faith is my thing and I'm not going to talk about it. But I encourage you, as you know lost people, share with them. Share with them. I know John McIntosh is not here today. He's like the perfect example of somebody who you know just sits down with any person and says, you know, here's what I'm learning in the Bible. It's so encouraging. It's a, a challenge to me. So that's what we can do. We can share what we're learning with others. So as we close today, I'll wrap this up here. You might be asking, okay, you say I should interpret it and apply it. How do I know? How do I know if I'm interpreting a passage right? Or what if I'm coming to a passage and I'm trying to get it and I'm just really struggling and going, I'm not really sure I understand what the Bible means here. That's a great question. A couple suggestions for you. The first one, just relax. <laughs> just relax. Just be at peace. And then just trust God and say, God, I just trust, I don't understand it now. I don't understand how this works. I, maybe I don't know what the meaning is. I just set that before you and trust that you're going to teach me somehow, some way, through what's going on. And then I also would encourage you, ask somebody. Don't be afraid to ask somebody. Ask your gospel group leader. Ask Brad or I. Uh, ask somebody you know who you think might have some kind of answer and say, oh, well, what do you think? I'm really struggling with this passage. Can you help me with it? I love when people come to me and ask me that. I go, this is great. You are wrestling with the scripture. I'm always so encouraged by that. Finally, the last thing to share here is to not forget the first part of this verse that we shared at the beginning. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Rightly handling the word of truth. How does that sentence start? Do your best. It doesn't say be perfect. It doesn't say get it right. It doesn't say you've got to have complete understanding to rightly handle the word. It says do your best. I hope you can see that. God has grace. God has grace for us as we wrestle with this scripture. It's one of the beauties of scripture, isn't it? We can read it for our entire lives for years and years and decades and decades and study it and study it and still not exhaust it and still not be experts at it. 
God has grace for us right where we're at as we, as we deal with interpreting the Bible. Amen? All right, I'll pray and we'll be done today. Yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you gave us clear instructions that we can understand literally and naturally. God, I thank you that there is a complexity to them, but there is a simplicity to them. And that when we understand the barriers and we understand the principles, we can come to a pretty good place of knowing what the Bible means and then put it into practice. I thank you that you haven't left us here in confusion, that you've been clear. You've provided us with this book that is timeless and priceless. Lord, as we, as, we tackle, uh, as we tackle the word this week in our own lives, as we talked about last week, pick it up and read it. And however we're going into that, help us to, in your grace, and not under compulsion but out of love, help us to pick up the Bible, help us to read it, help us to put these principles into practice, to interpret it, to understand what the Bible means. And God, even as we, we struggle with difficult passages or hard things, help us to... Just relax and be at peace and know that, hey, I'm doing my best. And God's in control. And, and, and God, we trust that you have things to, to reveal to us as we walk down the journey of faith here in life. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.